Today, our show is about story and memory and water. I am Suzanne Lang, and I bring you a novel idea. Before Europeans came to this country, people lived here and knew the land and knew the water. They told stories, had ceremonies, and had families. They were displaced and adapted to new place, but they were even further marginalized by many things, including agriculture and commerce. Our guests today guide us through their own transformations of identity, personal identity, identity with family, and with place, and in this, call us to look at the same. In just a moment, we'll talk with author Greg Saris on his book, Becoming Story. Later in the show, we'll visit with Juline Bear and her book, The Ogallala Road, a story of love, family, and fight to keep the Great Plains from running dry. Like Saris, Juline plows the territory of her native place, the High Plains of Western Kansas, and engages in a process of awakenings. So stay with us for that conversation. It's thought-provoking and a satisfying story. Greg Saris is the author of six books, including his important biography, Mabel McKay, Weaving the Dream. Mabel McKay was one of the last speakers of her native Pomo language. She is known for her absolute artistry as a basket weaver, as a healer, a dreamer, and an advocate for culture and an environment that supports it. Greg's novel and stories, Grand Avenue, which was made into a movie, depicts his life as a young man in Santa Rosa, California. Greg recently retired from his academic career where he taught writing and American Indian literature. Saris is currently the tribal chairman of the Federated Indians of Grayton Rancheria. Greg Saris brings us his latest book, Becoming Story, a journey among seasons, places, trees, and ancestors. Our conversation together was a first post-COVID in-person interview for us both. Let's listen. Greg Saris, Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. This is your latest book, and I'm, I'm really happy to talk to you about it this morning. I'm honored um, and touched that we're here, and here in, in person, and we're talking, I'm talking to somebody who I can actually see, uh, Suzanne, so... Thank you. Thank you for having me. I feel excited about it, too, because it is our first post-COVID in-studio interview, and it it really does make a difference. I want to jump right in to the book and your life because they are so entwined in the book. And Sonoma Mountain. Sonoma Mountain is your home. Yes. Um, It's a place that you live. It's a place that thousands of people pass every day driving on Highway 101 or at the Symphony in Green in Weill Hall there. If you're in the balcony, you can see the light changing on Sonoma Mountain. Or if you're going to Costco, you could see it from the parking lot. Yet Sonoma Mountain has such a significance in your ancestors' storytelling. 
And um, I wonder if we could start there with giving us a little bit of that significance of Sonoma Mountain that maybe many of us don't have or perceive. Well, um, yeah, it's an interesting question, Suzanne, because of the big mountains you think you think of Tamil Pius in our area, Mount Diablo, uh, St. Helena in our area. Uh, Sonoma Mountain is the most, just by looking at it when you're passing, as you said, on the freeway, it's the most kind of unassuming. There's not a big peak. It looks like just a progression of rolling hills rather than the dramatic peaks that you have with Tamil Pius or St. Helena. But once you get up there, I was just up there um, at the Fairfield Osborne Preserve yesterday with Obi Kaufman. Uh, and uh, so we were together. We're going to do some thing, books together because he has a book coming out um, at the same time uh, from the same publisher. But we were up there walking around, and people are always amazed that once you get up there, the changing landscapes and the ways in which that mountain is moving. It moves up and down. It's breathing. The person that was walking with us at the Fairfield Osborne Preserve, she'd been working there about eight or nine years, and she talked about an area just in the time that she's been there that has grown seven inches and another area, a whole plain, that has sunk even further. So the mountain is all very strange. It's not just interesting that every time you turn around up there, you're going to see another kind of environment, be it a body of water or um, the, the mountain always in always in creation. It always seems to be moving. Um, and so um, I think it, uh, you know, and again, I'm kind of doing my take on this. I think for those reasons, my people were always fascinated with it. And in a way, we're able to experience creation as a as it's happening in it, uh, in a very dramatic way. I mean, when you see a mountain changing and moving, you can imagine the experiences of our ancestors, our medicine people, and so forth as they went up there and saw the mountain as alive, which it is. And, of course, that became emblematic of how we saw all of life alive. And so it makes sense to me that our creation stories, so many of them um, took place up there. That's where Coyote, you know, was married to Frog Woman, and they had their two children, and that's where, as a consequence of his crazy actions, he created uh, the people and all the animals and all kinds of other things. So I ended up living there, you know, sort of by when I moved back here. I was lucky to find a home up there. But it's a fascinating place, and so I think... It's a, it's a trickster in and of itself because it does it looks as as again as I just said a progression of just kind of rolling hills but when you get up there it's easy to get lost see one kind of environment the other thing that happens up there is there's spots all over the mountain that are full of water so that when it rains and let us hope that it rains more there would be geysers coming up actually water that shoots up and I remember when I first moved up there and I was driving down the road right near my house there water was shooting up and I first thought oh my gosh who would have a water main way out here but it was the earth just spewing up from those underground geysers amazing amazing there are a few things I want to follow up with you on on that first of all it's great to hear you're doing something with Obi Kaufman we've talked to him before and 
I think that as you're doing with your writing, he's also doing with bringing together the natural world, our own perception of it, and art and literature and and just having it be part of a whole, not segmented into this and that. As we walked Sonoma Mountain yesterday, Suzanne, that's all we talked about. We talked about the need to tell stories in art, that that lifts us and reconnects us at the same time. And if nothing else in these hard times, we need stories about connection and a reminder of the beauty of this earth and be it his wonderful etchings and paintings and hopefully my stories. It's again what I we need to remember that the importance that we're here now and the preciousness of all life which in this madness, I think we tend to get distracted and forget. And Obi and I said, every time we get depressed or upset, let's just take a walk out here. I said, yes. <laughs> and I think that a lot of people have been doing that during this whole pandemic of having this need to be reaffirmed in a way. To find our feet on the ground. Yes. Because, because we've, we've experienced so much anxiety. Things are happening that we could never have imagined happening. Uh, many kind of crazy things have get normalized, but not a huge pandemic and not a, you know, the, the war now and everything. These things are just, I, I'm, I always say I'm old. <laughs> and in my lifetime, I've, I haven't seen this. Uh, um, I like what Joan Baez said in the, when she was interviewed in the New York Times when they asked her, um, what would people in the 60s have thought about what's going on right now? And she just said they could never have imagined that things would have gotten this messed up. You know, it still becomes an opportunity. I sit in my window where I write, and sometimes I get very depressed or things aren't going well, and I think, why am I doing this, Suzanne? And then a hummingbirds will come down into the window, and I th- think it's saying, I'm still here. I'm going on. What's wrong with you? (laughs) You brought up the um, kind of creation stories that several times in your stories in this book and and maybe in your previous book also, you say that this happened when they were still people, if I got that right. So I'm imagining that the coyote was doing this while he was still a person. And to me, that implies a real connection to the story. Let me say something here that you're hitting on something really important that shows a very different from the indigenous worldview versus the Western worldview. Because the indigenous, the Western worldview, we have the great chain of being where, you know, God is on top and then man and, of course, woman below man and all the way down to the bugs, right? Well, we're the reverse because everything was people. And then the coyote or the, and a person there got smart and tried to trick and kill a deer. So the animals grew wings, grew four long legs and went away from us. And we're left dumb with nothing but our stories to survive. We don't have claws. We don't have wings. So we're based on our story, Suzanne. We're, always, we're positioned to always remember that and work to reconnect with what we lost. Yes. I like that. And we and so we're always reminded we're not the center of the universe. And we have to keep remembering that we're part of the whole. And that's why a lot of the coyote stories and so forth 
they always there's a consequence always to our actions, and we always have to be reminded of that, good or bad. You mention in the book several times, and I should say this is the book is comprised of a series of essays, and so threaded through them are a lot of different fibers of your past, your stories, your ancestors' stories, your current musings. And you mentioned that when you grew up as a young boy, as a young man, you didn't know of your Native American heritage. Uh, It's something you found out, your Coast Miwok father, um, later on. And so I can't help but to think that you have been for these many years, and even then moving back to Sonoma County in this process of reassemblage or assemblage of who you are. And I think that that comes out in the stories, even you're sometimes questioning, even moving back there, moving to the mountain. And so, I mean, that's a monumental thing to find out that these people you grew up with you didn't even know you were related to them. And so can you talk a little bit about that? Yeah, it's, it's, it's ironic and weird and strange. And uh, again, you know, let me just say, um, somebody came up very angry at me at the gym the other night and said, I know all about you. You're only actually a quarter Indian. How could you open a casino? You have to be a full Indian to open a casino. Well, of course, they don't know the history of California Indians at all. Um, my father was half Indian, half Filipino, and my mother was a Jewish, German Jew, and uh, I was raised, adopted and raised Catholic. But on the birth certificate for father in those days, I'm old, I was born in 1952, they used to put the race of the ch- of parents. And for father, it just said unknown, non-white. And my mother didn't give him away. She was um, f- 16 when she got pregnant, and my father was 20, and in those days, that would have been big trouble for him. And apparently she loved him. But anyway, so I grew up um, around a lot of Latino people, Mexican-American people here, um, and Indian people. And I didn't know that I was related to them. But having been an adopted child and then not really fitting in with that family very well, I was in these Mexican and Indian families, and particularly the Indian families. And I was always attentive to who was related to who, because I wanted to see how I might possibly fit in. I mean, maybe that's the genesis of me being such a great genealogist. I can tell you who's related to who, because I remember the stories as a kid so well, and the people talking. And it's really interesting. I always wondered why, and I don't think it has to do with blood. Remember, Suzanne, we must remember, blood does not presuppose point of view. But it was very strange because I guess also the old time people, they would always take a lost person to try to train them because the outsider was always watching, looking in. And I remember the older people always taking me aside and telling me stories, even trying to teach me kind of bad medicine and things and things that I could do, right? They knew that I was perhaps needy and they could use my neediness. I'm not sure. But the blessing I had was Mabel McKay. And um, even before I knew exactly who my father was, she gave me a prayer basket and said to me, one day you're going to be a leader among the people. This is to protect you and to guide you. And I thought, yeah, old lady, you know, the sun's going to come up in the West. But 
you know, look what happened. Um, so, uh, and as she used to say, her great disclaimer, Suzanne, is whether you believe it or not, it's true. So I, I don't know. And then when I found out, you know, again, Mabel said to me, and I showed her a picture of my father, and all she said is, oh, he's cute. And she said then, and I'm paraphrasing, you're never any more or less than your experience, what you've lived. And so when you ask the question or we talk about these things, the danger is to want to be an Indian, whatever that may be, or want to be someone or something else. But you can't escape all that you are, and you must accept that. We're all here together. If all these different races can get along in my blood, they must get along in the world. And I think ultimately that's the indigenous worldview, that we're all connected. And if we look at what's happening today in a positive light, we're all connecting. Let's just not make the connection cancer or something. Yes. Let's make it health. Yes, yes. Health and peace. Yes. Yes, yes. You know, the the book, I felt it was a very personal book for you, the, the writer, but also for me, the reader, just almost for the reasons you just said. I've called this place home for almost 40 years, and I don't, there's not a day I don't walk out of my house and just wonder at, at the rolling hills, whether they're brown or, or green, and uh, their um, burliness. I live uh, on the border of Marin and Sonoma County, and so the Tamales Bay area is where I call home. And my favorite story in the book really was I know where you're going. Fidel. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that story really got me, too. For many reasons, and I, w I want you to address some of these, it, it was a remembrance for you. It was a story of your people. It was a beautiful description of, of landscape and legend, and I felt uh, an immediate connection with this story. I felt it was almost like one of um, Mabel McKay's baskets because yeah. it was That's the highest compliment. so <laughs> woven together. So tell us a little bit about the story, Fidel. Well, you first of all, you said a couple things. You know, everybody asked me, should I call you Indian, whatever, Native American? We're all Native. If you're, I remember um, you might be old enough to remember they used to have the bumper stickers, Native Californian, when they didn't want people to come. And I always think, well, I would roll down the window and say, no, I am. But if you're born here and you're experiencing here, that's it. You are part of this landscape as everything else is, Suzanne, and your memories. And now as you engage with that part of Tamales Bay where Fidel stood, all of that sort of thing, that you are there. Own that. I mean, it is your experience. It is your life. Whatever happens to you if you move away or whatever, your being and story is planted there. So we're all here. And it isn't just, you know, the landscape isn't as it was before European contact. And we can't go back. We can work together with a better sense of ethical relationship to the land. But what you saw in Fidel's story Oh, before I forget, I love the word wonder. That's where it all starts. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so go out there and wonder. And all of the good stories remind us of what I, the, the poet E.E. E. Cummings said, the better question, or the better answer asks 
another question, the bigger question. And it's wonder, 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 wonder. But Fidel, what I really thought about that and the grasslands there is his memory. He's about to be hung. He's going to be killed. He, he, in an act of revenge for his wife being raped by the colonizing faction or group, he murdered a a man in, in revenge, and they were going to obviously capture him. And instead of running, he went to what he remembered was his most beautiful because as he left his life, he wanted to remember that, which was both that relationship to his wife and her dress going over that grass and the grasslands. And the story shows so much. It's about the relationship to the land. I suppose that any of us, if we have a choice or the opportunity in minutes, hours, or whatever, to remember what's most important, it's going to be people, but place and images. And for the indigenous man, such as Fidel, he was connected to the land. And so he knew the grass, and he knew where he could be easily hunted. He knew they were going to catch him. And I'm sure there's a combination of sadness about his wife and all of this. But he was going to go with a story, a memory of beauty, and let it end there. He, I, I thought, you know, what more can you say? When I was reading that story, I felt like I knew the place he was standing yeah. I felt like I'd been there. I knew that place. Yeah. And then at the end of that story, he says to you, yeah. uh, to, well, to tell the story. Yes. To yeah. tell the story. And that's all we can do is witness and have the opportunity. And the landscape is full of those stories. And the stories I'm writing now, it's it's about um, the Crow Sisters again, but the creation stories from the uh, How a Mountain Was Made. But the Crow Sisters are telling about the stories about the forgetters, all of us down here who have forgotten and marking places and remembering things again, all of us who are here. Um, I remember once a person, a, a non-Indian person, asked Mabel McCabe, well, I'm not Indian. If you doctor me and do Indian medicine on me, will it work? And she just laughed. She thought that was the funniest thing. And she said, well, you're human, ain't you? <laughs> She had a lot of pithy little observations. She, she was like nature. She constantly made you wonder. She was always, uh, you know, I'll tell a story um, apropos today. Forty-five years ago, we were driving back from Stanford where she was, where, as she always said, the psychologist wanted to analyze her. Um, <laughs> uh, but um, in her broken English. Um, but uh, we were driving back up to the Yoshidehi uh, Reservation and uh, going through Fairfield. And the hills were dry. I believe it was in the fall. And she looked out the window and she said, uh, everything's going to go dry. Everything's going to burn up. And uh, she said, that's my latest dream. And we're coming to that point. And, of course, I was a much younger man and perhaps even sillier or stupider than I am now, Suzanne. And I said, well, Mabel, what do we do? What do we do? And she said, that's cute. What do we do? (laughs) And I thought, oh, here we go. She's making fun of me again. And I said, no, I'm serious. What do do we do? She took, as we say in the theater, a silent beat. And she said, you live the best way you know how. What else? Live the best way we know how. Yeah. Yeah. She also said some things to you about 
stories, not to tell stories after or before the frost, after or before winter season. Not only because you must pay attention to where you are going, watchful for snakes and such, but because you too are coming out, becoming story. It was the rule, she said. But then you say, but stories won't let up. And, and now you're telling your own story. And I guess I, I want you to tell us a little bit about your life as a writer. Because um, even in one of these stories in the book about a tree and Oprah, but you maybe are having a frustrating time writing or something, and you're, you even question, what am I even writing about? And, yeah. and so I'm wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about your life as, as a writer, as a storyteller. Yeah, well, it's funny. You mentioned uh, the tree of Oprah or an oak, oak, oak tree, and it was funny. Yesterday when Obi came to my house, he, he found Oprah right away. Uh, he picked her out. He would. But, um, you know, you, I do wonder, and what I want in my stories is to do structurally, lyrically, what I do in my mind, which is a dialogical relationship with the landscape and with the stories. I'm also an academic. I'm not a medicine person that goes into a trance or anything like that. I'm maybe a scribe or a storyteller, and... You know, it's, it, I go through the things that other writers go through, I'm sure. Um, and it's been hard with all of the, you know, political and casino work and all of that sort of stuff. But um, it's what I was born to do. I think my, you know, if, you, if I claim my experience as a child and those things that I went through and those things I heard, I'm able to offer something as small as it may be to the next generation's and to remember, to mark the place. Uh, it's so touching that you're in Tamales Bay, and when you go near where Fidel was, that becomes now part of your memory. And, and then what happens with that? You know, at the time before contact, the landscape was our Bible. It was our sacred text, a, a grassland or an outcropping of rocks became mnemonic peg on which stories were told. And I guess what I want to be is just remind us of those pegs and the stories that are there that can teach us how to think about life. Um, and we're in a place now, let's start remembering and dialoguing. As I used to tell my students, I could take you to a taco truck every night for six months, but that's not going to make you a Mexican. Um, what it'll do is put you, be a person all of who you are in relationship with something new. And the whole idea of studying other cultures or other people isn't to become them, but to better understand, to understand them to some extent, but to better understand yourself. What constitutes the parameters of you as a cultured being? You learn more about that's not me and who I am as a result. Um, women have been people of color have had to, gay, lesbian people, LGBTQ community, constantly have had to negotiate who they are in a dominant society. The, the dominant folks, sometimes you don't have a sense of what the limits of who you are. I've had students who say, I'm just a, I don't have any culture, I'm just McDonald's. I say, yes, you do. Study a little while and you'll understand what constitutes you yeah. as a cultured being. 
so many of us have found home here means that uh, I, I find that your stories do kind of open it up for us to see in different ways our own place and maybe our own experience of place and and maybe that's what you're trying to do in in your storytelling is invite invite us all in because Suzanne that's exactly what I'm doing and I've done all my life how do I fit in where do I fit in how am I here I'm not Mabel McKay you know you think Indian and you know uh, uh, that wasn't me I didn't uh, my first contact with the Indian person I think I was probably five years old I didn't grow up so does that make me not Indian enough who am I here who am I as a person that grew up here and experienced what I did instead of lying and so much so many narratives and they're good memoirs are ask very specific questions uh, Maxine Hong Kingston what is a hyphenated uh, Chinese for instance and she focuses on that but you know we always kind of carve out what we want to talk about in a memoir or in our essays but I always want to remind the reader that what you're getting is my view my interacting with things that opens it up to you and isn't pedantic or any way preaching to you but the experience of a person negotiating life, memory, and meaning in one place. And, you know, you don't have to have Indian blood to be able to do that. As Mabel would say, you need to be alive. I want to talk about a piece in the book called After the Fall. It's sort of a, a futuristic projection of um, the removal of O'Shaughnessy Dam and the restoration of the Hetch Hetchy Valley. And though I don't know that I'd call this science fiction, um, but like science fiction, it did have uh, interesting and a kind of creepy, for me, quality to it. And so I want to talk about that in the terms of this story and, and your kind of futuring it out all the way to your grandson, but also the reality of what do these kind of restoration efforts um, that we try to undertake uh, what, what do they really do well it's interesting the LA Times asked me to do this and I think that <laughs> word count it was the largest story even to date that they published because you know they, and um, I was sure they were going to cut part of it out but um, um, it was a wonderful assignment they asked me to imagine past present and future and I'd like to take sometime maybe and expand that idea everybody's writing science fiction today uh, or cli-fi, as they call it. But so much of it is still Western thinking. I mean, it's what people are still behaving in the future just like they're behaving now. And I, I think that, Suzanne, if we are going to survive or who's ever left, my sense is that as they survive, they're going to have to become like indigenous people and understand that they need the birds and the animals and the trees to talk back to them. Where do I get food? How do I... I'm praying to you. You're alive. So I think... That, if, if we're going to make it, and there is a future and so forth, no matter how that comes down, it's going to be a recognition that things have to go back to a profound respect where we realize the consequences of our arrogance and don't repeat it. 
I mean, I think we're going to be forced in it. We might be hungry and, you know, we'll pretty soon we're going to realize that the rain is a spirit and a person. We're going to start praying like mad, or we should, singing like mad, doing whatever we can um, to placate that spirit, that rain spirit. All of that's life. So I think that in that piece, um, after the fall, I was, again, imagining what a place would be like. You talked about restoration, and we're doing, there are a lot of efforts, but too often, and we get, I've gotten into this with, you know, the tribe I'm very proud to say is uh, uh, signed a precedent-setting co-management agreement with Point Reyes. And, um, you know, everybody wants me to go in there and tell them to immediately get rid of the cows and tear down all the fences and, yes, and have the elk go back and forth across Highway 1. That'll... <laughs> We're all here now. We have to be kind of reasonable because we can't go back as a lot of people want to fantasize. But we have to, as we were talking earlier about our personal selves, know where we are. Three-quarters of my blood is an invasive species, right? And so, you know, you want to get rid of all the invasive species and you want to do this. It's not going to happen in our lifetime. What we have to do is start negotiating with all of the life that is here now. How can we manage too many cows? Yes. But to immediately wipe them all out um, so that there could be more elk, gosh, I would love to have a vision of the savanna once again with great herds of elk and antelope that were here, pronghorn that were running here. That would be wonderful to see. But it also would mean that there'd have to be plenty of grizzly bears and mountain lions to take care of them. So I, I can't imagine with the folks here that we could actually live very well with that. <laughs> so remember, the grizzly bear was the ruler of the land here. Again, we, we have to be, as I, I wrote that story, and there's some creepiness about what's going to happen and where that's going to go. But what I really wanted to do was think about how we need to be thinking about that land when that happens. For our listeners and readers in this story there, they go through great lengths to restore the ecosystem of the Hetch Hetchy Valley. But it's, uh, I, th- I think even in the story, you, you use the term museum. It becomes yeah. a museum in, in some ways, not necessarily even a reality, but a, um, a fabricated, reality and well that's just to the point you're saying that that um, when we look at restoration we we have to look at where we're at you know the tree that you write about up on Sonoma Mountain at your house that it sounds like you didn't have to cut it down but it mm-hmm. it you know is affected with sudden oak death and and that our, our landscape is continually changing through biotic means and abiotic means I mean that's what's happening but we have to take that where we are now and move from there as if it is our home because it, it is our home. Isn't that, yeah, I mean, <laughs> you know? it, it seems so simple and obvious if we would just accept it. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of uh, the, and I'm quoting the Irish poet Yeats, who said, this preposterous, pragmatical pig of a world would vanish on the instant if the mind would but change its theme. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if we could just change the theme, 
and again, so much of Western culture is predicated on the story. Let's just take the one about the the Israelites being freed and searching the desert for a home. And we, we understand all of that and the reasons for that, but something very toxic happened. They felt that they were chosen and owed something by God. That enabled them to then go somewhere else and colonize or start a war somewhere else. And the whole history, so much of the West, of Western culture, is one of displacement and an attempt to claim, but an attempt to claim with power rather than relationship. And so I think it's really important that we now hear, and our whole lives are about tomorrow, what we're going to get more, or fear, or how are we going to be home? We've got to dominate this one, or got to build a fence against my neighbor because I don't want their dog coming over here, or all this. We live in a world where it's constant walls. How do we create, or at least live, I can't tear down all my neighbor's walls or fences, I'm not, I wouldn't even try, but how do I, how do we begin to think in terms of we rather than us, them? And when you have a world that's been uh, predicated by a colonial kind of thinking where you have to colonize and it becomes us, them, us, them, we're always with nature. We're never going to be home because we're always going to be afraid in our own home. Look what's going on right now. How can we trust enough? And, you know, I can't change the world, but I can try like mad in the best moments of my life to be home and in my writing to spread that feeling to the reader. Several things I, I, I want to follow up on. And I believe it was threaded through a couple of these stories. I'm, I'm going to paraphrase you. Violence is the lowest form of humanity or the lowest form of living. I, or, or war. It's, it's, yes. it's uh, the... It's the lowest show of power. <laughs> yes. Um, so I'm really glad you raised that. I, and it's, you know, as a California Indian, we always have a little bit of chip on our shoulder because from the Buffalo Bill all the way through the Westerns, everything's the Plains Indians. But part of that is because the Plains Indians had what the Europeans, the Westerners, understood, which is organized warfare. And we always tend to value others in terms of the things we value. And in this case, they were the most threatening because they gave the settlers so much trouble and seemed so fierce because they had very uh, organized warfare. California Indians, where we're sitting right now, Suzanne, there were more people here than there was anywhere else in the New World outside the present site of Mexico City, which was the Aztec capital. More people per capita here. And speaking more, every language family found in the New World is found somewhere in California. Pomo is a Hokan language, and it's found in Oaxaca, for instance, the language family. So all the language families are people were speaking different languages. They were living so close together. Um, we didn't have so-called organ. I mean, there would be skirmishes where I'm sure one group would go, you know, fight or shoot arrows at another or whatever. But mostly it was predicated on spiritual stuff, for instance, and predicated on respect. So in some form or other, if I disrespected you, if I stole your acorns, if I hit somebody or did something to somebody, you wouldn't come back and hit me or slap me or scream at me. What would happen is the next day, my mother 
or somebody might drop dead. You'd put a spell on them because we all had power. We understood that everybody had power. Even a little stone on the ground has power. You don't mess with it. And the ethnographers and anthropologists talked about that as a culture predicated on fear and black magic. No, it was a culture predicated on profound respect. And of course, the Europeans, especially the Franciscan Padres and others, didn't understand subtlety. We were very subtle. We would sit there. I remember hearing some of the old people talk and somebody would have died and they'd say, heart attack or stroke. You know, and so you were always a little careful. You respected somebody. We were cultures predicated, as most indigenous cultures are, on heterogeneity. The more different you were or the more awe-inspiring you were, the more power you had. Uh, nation states are dependent on homogeneity. We, we need soldiers to march in line. We need people to, we need teenage girls that all buy things that'll look like Paris Hilton or something, right? But here it was different. In indigenous cultures, it's your difference that really makes you special and awe-inspired. And it reminds you simultaneously that you're not the center of the universe. You're not all-powerful. If I had to hit you, Suzanne, I would indicate to everybody else I had no power. I wouldn't dare do that because then that would indi uh, uh, indicate to them, oh, you can just go kill him. He, there will be no recourse. That's why the Pomo people on the coast, um, their word for the Europeans was palacha. And I always used to ask the old people, which means miracle or miracles. And I used to ask the old people, why do you call the white people miracles? And they said, well, when they came here and they were chopping down trees and killing animals and damming up the water, you know, we thought if you do those things, it's going to come back on you. And they weren't getting punished. Instead, more of them kept coming. So we thought they were miraculous. But Suzanne, as you and I sit here today, there's not a a breath of air, there's not a drop of water that isn't poison. It's all coming back on us. It just took a little longer. It took a little longer, but it is coming back on us. I'm talking with Greg Saris. The book is Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. And there's good stories in here that uh, we didn't even touch on, but I will let our readers and, and listeners discover them on their own, because I think that uh, this is a book for all, but if you live in, in Northern California and call this area home, I think it will definitely um, deepen your appreciation for our place and our own legacy. So Greg, is there anything you want to leave us with? Um, well, first of all, I want to thank you and the radio station for having me. I'm honored. It's so wonderful to be talking to a person and see her. And I think this is a book of my writings over the past few years. And uh, I, I think you'll find something that will speak to you, particularly if you live around here, both in what you can learn about the place and ways in which you watch me trying to think about the place as a person from the place. Um, and finally, I want to say, Suzanne, you're a prime example. There was the one story, and I found that certain readers, depending on where they live or their life experience, will find one of these that they really just grabs them. And when it came to Fidel's place, um, when you mentioned Tomales Bay that you were from there, I said, I know exactly where she's going. <laughs> going 
to that place. Yes, yes. And I, <laughs> I think there's um, people who who live along the river uh, will definitely, some things will resonate for them, too. You talk a lot about and, and revisit Wooler Bridge area. Yes. And, and so I just think, and, and I guess I do want to reiterate that this is very much your story. You're puzzling through things in some cases and, and reflecting upon who you were, who you are, where we are. And where I might be going. And where we <laughs> might be going. Um, and, and so in that way, my ex- each of our experiences is, u- is unique. But I think all of us will want to examine our lives, engage our, our past, our present, and think of it in terms of place. Because place is integral whether we undersee it or want to see it or not. We're here in Sonoma County. That means certain things. Greg, thanks so much. Thank you, Suzanne. Thank you for caring. My conversation with Greg Saris. His book is Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors. Greg provided us both with the pleasure of his reading my favorite story in the book, Fidel. Greg Saris reading from Becoming Story. I think it's a prime example of what I'm trying to do in most of my work, where I'm telling history, I'm learning something from history, and simultaneously my own experience of a place. So, I mean, it it kind of weaves all of that together. Three days after the Indian, I'll call him Fidel, avenged the assault on his wife and slayed the young rancher who'd committed the horrible deed. A posse of vigilantes pursuing him found him, not near the small settlement of Marshall, but across Tamales Bay on a ridge, and not in a thicket of coyote brush and low-growing fir, where he might have hidden, but in the middle of an open grassland. Seemingly oblivious to the sound of approaching horses, he was standing, taking in the view, continuing to look over his shoulder at the expanse of Pacific and then back across the bay to the eastern hills from which he'd come. Even when the men shouted threats, dismounted and aimed their bayonet-clad rifles at him, he did not waver. He didn't look as if he'd been running for days. His clothes on that fogless morning were clean, and he wore a brightly colored shirt, perhaps white or scarlet, creating the impression along with his indifference to their approach, that he actually wanted to be found, surrender. The men continued to bark orders, bayonets jutting from their rifles only feet from him. And all he did was drop his gaze to the grass where he'd been standing, then look back to the open prairie, his head twisted around, even as they marched him, shackled down to the boat that would carry him across the water to Marshall. I was 12 or thereabouts when I first heard about Fidel. A friend's mother, I believe a descendant of Fidel, told the story. Like many Coast Miwok from Tabalas Bay, my friend's mother had moved north to Santa Rosa a couple decades before, shortly after World War II, looking for work, and she often reminisced with her sisters about the old days in Marshall, sharing stories not just with each other, but for any kids who sat in her kitchen table and listened. 
I never liked the story. I found it moralizing, admonishing. For a while, this man Fidel had great powers, including the ability to shapeshift into a hummingbird, which would have allowed him to escape his captors. He could not use them, because he had broken the tacitly understood rule that those who possess these powers should not commit murder. But after decades of dislocation and abuse, this story took place, by the way, in the late 1860s or early 1870s, to find your wife gagged and tied under the thrall of a white man and not do anything, or to get punished for seeking justice, just didn't seem fair. Hearing the tale, I probably, like others listening in, sublimated that part of the story I didn't like and focused instead on Fidel's revenge, how he survived. If you go to Marshall on a night when there is no fog, my friend's mother said, you can sometimes see on that treeless ridge along the water an enormous green light. For Cosmiwak, like all indigenous people of central California, the landscape was nothing less than a richly layered text, a sacred book, each ocean cove, even the smallest seemingly unassuming rock or track of open grassland, each feature of the natural world, was a mnemonic peg on which individuals could see a story connected to other stories and thus know and find themselves home. Villages, indeed entire nations, were not only associated with particular locales, but actually named after them, hence the tribal nation that occupied most of the territory encompassing what is now called Point Reyes National Seashore called itself Olima, Coyote's Home. A large village overlooking Drake's Bay was Pesoluma, Oliveraschel Ridge, an open grassland ridge and shoreline just north of Laird's Landing on Tomales Bay, where vigilantes found Fidel on that fogless summer morning, was called Kalaputmal, Hummingbird Coast. By the late 1860s and early 1870s, the landscape of the region had been greatly transformed. Much of the homescape trampled, unreadable. The fir forests were logged, the waterways dammed or dredged, the herds of elk and pronghorn all but gone. Overgrazing and foreign seed in the dung of the cattle and horses combined to unsettle the prairie grasslands, replacing the deep-rooted perennial bunch grasses and sedges with exotic annuals like European oat grass. European settlement thus spelled dissettlement, And for the natives, the dissettlement was both personal and historical, psychological and environmental. Members of the Olima Nation and of Gualan, just south of Olima, were among the first Coast Miwok to be taken into the missions, specifically into Mission Dolores in San Francisco as early as 1818. Many survivors of the missions and the subsequent Mexican Rancho period ended up on a tract of land near present-day Nicasio. When these survivors were booted out of Nicasio by Americans in the early 1860s, many went west to Tomales Bay and settled along the shore. Today, however, no known Coast Miwok traced their ancestry back to an Olima village. Most of the mission survivors originated from eastern locales, and many were the descendants of intermarriage between Spanish or Mexican settlers, Yet stories of the place persisted. Perhaps some Olima survivors had returned to, or even led others to, the region. In the old tradition, the survivors rooted themselves in the place and began to call themselves Tamales Bay Indians. I saw the green light. 
On one of those many trips from Santa Rosa to Marshall in the middle of the night, a dozen of us packed into a car or onto a truck bed. Didn't I see the ball of green light atop the ridge across the water? I see it, someone always said. Maybe I didn't see it and only know it in my imagination. The shape of the grassland ridge that rises above the bay was there, visible even in the dark night. And it is there today, the open prairie of Tamales Point, bordered by brush and sparse live oak, not unlike the prairie grasslands elsewhere along the seashore. I've made several trips to this place in recent years, stood in the grass and taken in the views. Tule elk have been reintroduced, but where they once roamed freely, now they are contained by fences, maintained for the local dairy ranchers. More black-and-white Holsteins dot the peninsula's grasslands than elk. Yet always the man Fidel rises up from the grass, visible before me, bright shirt, his demeanor resolved, and I am set to wonder about him, though now it's not the green light or the drama of his last days it intrigues me but the question regarding this place why he stopped in the open as if his only reason for fleeing the law was to come to this particular spot the grasslands were always a safe haven not only for herds of elk and pronghorn to graze and for us to hunt but also as a refuge from the grizzlies less visible in the forest behind brush Villages were always located adjacent to grasslands, and in fact, controlled burning of the grasslands kept the brush and encroaching trees in check. After European settlement, when natives were forbidden to burn, much of the grassland was taken over by coyote brush and Douglas fir. Fidel, though, wasn't hiding. What safety, then, in the open space? He could have run south, from Marshall, not return northward below the bay, and run out into the narrowing peninsula between ocean and bay, where he would be trapped eventually. Did he simply want to go where he had views? Was there something in the place concerning his totem hummingbird that he had to reconcile before his death? Or was it a memory, certainly of his wife, the strength and delicacy of her fingers as she held a basket and a seed beater while collecting seed for Pinoli, and as she went along there, how the hem of her dress caught and lifted atop the grass stalk. Then Fidel is laughing at me, for once again, frustrated by my pondering, I follow him across the water to the hanging noose, to the scaffold on which he stands, the mob below, jeering American settlers, somber Indians in the distance, and at last I understand something. It is the grassland itself, the safety it gives memory. There is the space, yes, on which memory paints its lore, but it is in the grass, too, perennials, annuals, roots, grasses that reveal the shape of the land from time immemorial and continue to rise up there again and again. The prairie, so empty, so full. Is that what Fidel sought, that understanding in the grass? He is gone, the scaffold empty, and there on the grassland ridge, a light in the brain, he stands laughing, what more, he says, you told the story. Greg Saris reading Fidel from his book, Becoming Story, A Journey Among Seasons, Places, Trees, and Ancestors, published by Heyday Books. 
I am Suzanne Lang, and this is KRCB's A Novel Idea. Julene Baer grew up on a farm in the high plains of western Kansas, on top of the Ogallala Aquifer. She graduated from the Iowa Writers Workshop, is an NEA fellow, has taught writing at many venues, including the University of Wyoming, the University of Iowa, and the Jackson Hole Writing Festival. We talk about her book, The Ogallala Road, a story of love, family, and the fight to keep the Great Plains from running dry. Her previous work is One Degree West, Reflections of a Plains Daughter. Julene is a sharp observer of what's happening in the world outside of herself and examines herself and relationships in context of place and family and water. She is an utter romantic and an utter realist. Here is our conversation. The Ogallala Road, a story of love, family, and the fight to keep the Great Plains from running dry. Julene Bear is the author of this book. Julene, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here. Sometimes your book reads like a novel with family drama and romance and cultural revelations that some might not know about. And it ultimately is a reflection on conflicts, beauty and the loss of it, being connected to the land and being a capitalist or depleting resources and altering agricultural practices. Uh, but at the heart of this is you're examining your own divided self in connection to the land and its legacy and and your family and your own legacy. And would you say that's a fair assessment of the book? Yes, I feel like you've given it a really good reading and understand it quite well. And it all starts in Kansas with water. So first, for our listeners and, and readers, let's describe um, the Ogallala Aquifer and the high plains of western Kansas, the place you grew up. Okay. Um, the High Plains are called the High Plains because they are around 4,000 feet above sea level. And they are plains, mostly flat, but there are river valleys and stream valleys. Originally, it was grasslands, short grass prairie, buffalo grass, and it hosted something like 50 to 70 million bison. That's in the entire center of the country, not necessarily just the Great Plains. I think it was really what formed me as a human being. It, made, it gave me a, my aesthetics, my sense of uh, beauty. I want to be able to see far. I appreciate pastels and pastel skies and pastel grass as opposed to anything that's too intensely blue or green. The water there is, of course, what hydrated me in my childhood. It gave me life. And we were up close and personal with that water. It came to us through a windmill, which was a well drilled about 200 feet down into the Ogallala Aquifer. The aquifer underlies 174,000 square miles of the high plains, all the way from 
southern South Dakota to North Texas. For a long time, people were only able to access it through hand dug wells, but over time our technology got more and more sophisticated. We were able to access it with windmills and then eventually with pumps that could pump at a volume that was sufficient to irrigate crops. And that changed everything on the high plains at that point. From then on, agriculture became much more focused on growing crops that previously we hadn't been able to grow there. The farm I grew up on was a dry land farm. And that's according to the historian Walter Prescott Webb. It's the art of being able to farm in a place where there's not enough water. And we were really good at it. My father was really good at it and all the farmers there were really good at it. But then along came irrigation and it became much easier to farm crops such as corn, which we hadn't been able to raise before that. And farming became much more lucrative at that point. And I think in the book you describe that the people before us, the natives who lived in, in the West, they also dry farmed their cultivated crops over time too. And the Native Americans were really violently pushed from this land. Their ghosts are with you as, as you revisit some of the places in western Kansas, just over the Colorado border. And I wonder if you can, before we go any deeper into the aquifer, to, to talk a little bit about also your upbringing in western Kansas and your knowledge and understanding of the life of the people who were there before you? Well, as a child, I didn't know much about the people who lived before me. It wasn't emphasized in school. Sometimes someone would bring in arrowheads that they had collected on the prairie. My brother was very good at finding arrowheads. I never knew what tribes might have lived there before us or who the who had fashioned those arrowheads. I knew about Plains Indians. There was a county just north of ours called Cheyenne County. And it I, I, I don't really think I ever put it two and two together and realized that it was named that because the Cheyenne Indians had been prominent there. It was only as an adult that I found my interest in the past on the land and began researching it in some depth and discovered that there had been all sorts of noteworthy events that had happened within 10, 15, 20 miles of my farm, all of them involving the Cheyenne Indians and sometimes the Sioux and other Plains tribes, but the Cheyenne were the primary tribe in that region. And there was a, that county, Cheyenne County had very rugged terrain and I was, influenced by that terrain as a child. It was exciting to me to be there. And I, so I think that's part of why I developed that interest later in life. So I started researching what the Indian story had been in that area. And of course, everything went back to water. All of these battles and all of the sun dances and so on that had taken place had all had to be near water because that's where people had to be in order to drink or have anything to for their horses to drink. 
So there were these springs in these areas that just bubbled up to the surface of their own accord. And that was water coming up out of the Ogallala Aquifer. And the Indians would hold their sun dances there at those places. At one point within about, I would say probably about 30 miles of my home back in about 1851, I think it was, or 52, a historian uh, discovered that the Sumner expedition had visited a site that had been in that year or the year prior to that, the location of a Sundance where there had been 3,000 Cheyenne Indians. They always came together, the entire tribe, for their sun dances. So that just lit my imagination on fire to imagine that there had been 3,000 Indians that were able to be sustained by that water, for one thing, along with their eight or nine horses per person. That was just intriguing to me and um, exciting. It, it, Like I say, it sort of lit me on fire to imagine that. I could go on and on talking about Indians. There were battles, there were massacres, there were all, all sorts of things I had never been aware of as a child. Do you wonder what your uh, or anybody's life would be like to know that, to have that knowledge as a child of um, that legacy both the the wonder of it, as you just described, people getting together f- for a, a, a dance on Moss, um, but also the devastation and the massacres. Because if I recall, the county that your farm is in was um, Sherman County? Do I have That's that? That's right. Sherman yeah. County? Mm-hmm which uh-huh. is almost um, uh, an opposite of Cheyenne County in, in who it's named for. A famous Civil War journal, general who became a general in the Plains Indian Wars. He was called Tecumseh. And that was after, and that was an Indian name, but I, I can't, uh, I would have to dig that out in order to give you the details on that. But you're right, the two counties represent the history right there between the two of them and the conflict that was created because of settlement, because of the desire to settle the plains, which is what my family did. But as a child, I had a relationship with the land, which I think is just innate in children to be excited about the wildlife and the freedom of riding a horse over the plains and all of that sort of thing. I had a relationship to it that was, in my mind at least, somewhat like what the Indians relationship must have been like. And I I started to notice that the names of the Indians that had lived there often had features from the landscape that were portrayed in their name. or, or names of animals and that sort of thing. And I began to get the impression that perhaps their relationship with the land, with the land was more centered on the land. Um, Eudora Welty mentioned once in a book that she wrote about place 
and writing that when people come to a place and settle, eventually they find a God there. And I think the Native Americans did do that. They didn't originate on the high plains, but once they were there, they developed the Sundance and they had their worship was around the cottonwood tree that they would pick, that they would cut down from near the stream that flowed out of the Ogallala Aquifer and it entailed notice of everything in nature of the plains, but we weren't like that. We didn't bring, we, we brought our religion to the plains and we never adapted to the plains the way the Native Americans had adapted to them. And as you alluded earlier, at a certain point, technology allowed for pumping the water differently than with your windmill your, that you were pumping with and allowed a lot more water to be brought up to irrigate crops that normally couldn't be sustained. And it really changed the nature of family farming and the amount of water in the aquifer. And at one point, you did a calculation that said, we pumped 139 million gallons that season, even though we irrigated more than 700 acres at that time. Half of that amount went onto our 80-acre cornfield. That was more than 4,000 gallons of water for every bushel of corn we'd harvested. And that was in itself just kind of shocking numbers to me. And this became an issue for you when you started realizing what was happening. And people who had small family farms either had to sell out or expand or invest into these, you know, different types of operations and uh, changed the nature of farming in Kansas. So talk a little bit about that and, and that awareness, that, that growing awareness that you had. Okay. Uh, when I was little, I watched my dad, as I mentioned, in his farming techniques. He was a dryland farmer, and he was very careful to plant the seeds just on top of the moist soil, which was maybe two or possibly three inches deep. It was an art, like I said, but now the water was just gushing down these irrigation, um, these furrows. At that time, we were irrigating out of large eight inch diameter pipes at the tops of the fields. And when I would knock those pipe gates open, I, I lived back home for a while. The book relates this. Um, I went home when I was pregnant with my son and had my son there and farmed with my father for a while. And I was jokingly called one, a flood man. That was my job. I would go out and change the, sit, the sets on the irrigation. And when I would knock those gates open, the water would gush out with such force that my hand would be thrown back or my whole entire arm would be thrown back from the force of it. And it just, it hit home to me how much water we were sending down those furrows. 
Um, 4,000 bushels, 4,000 gallons per bushel is excessive, but the average is more like 1,900 gallons per bushel. We were obviously wasting some water when we uh, used that much water, but at any rate, 1,900 is enough. You know, that's a lot. It takes about 14 inches of water to grow a corn crop in that region. So, so that's how much we would pump out. What we didn't get from rainfall, let me rephrase that. It takes about 14 inches of irrigation water to raise a corn crop on the high plains. So you, the aquifer only recharges at the rate of about one inch a year. So that means that you're working at a deficit of about 13 inches, which ultimately means we're draining the aquifer. Uh, there's only about 50 years of water left on, in Kansas. In most regions, there's areas where the water's already gone. Um, that's happening in parts of Kansas and in parts of North Texas and Oklahoma and parts of Nebraska. So it varies from farm to farm, but um, it's predicted that in 50 years, Kansas generally won't have enough water left to irrigate with. The same thing is happening now, I think, in California, where um, in the Central Valley, farmers are having to resort to groundwater at an increasing rate because we're not getting the rain we need to water the crops uh, and the, or the snow in the Sierras. So it's a problem that exists worldwide, really. And there's also, you factor in the um, government subsidies that were part of this cycle of waste, I'll say, but it incentivized people like your dad to be using that water and growing that type of crop, if I understand that correctly. That's right, and that's still true. There's no differentiation between Iowa where it rains enough to grow corn without irrigation and western Kansas where it doesn't rain enough. So the farm program gives you the same incentives whether you're irrigating or not. Um, it encourages you, in other words, to deplete the aquifer. It's my contention that the farm program ought to incentivize conservation and a shift to more drought tolerant crops. And I argue that why would the farmer really care if you can get the same amount of subsidies to do something that helps protect the nation's largest aquifer, indeed this continent's largest aquifer, then why not do that? I mean, that's a better choice. The same, the same thing goes for chemicals. We're overusing chemicals, we're overusing nitrates, and there are alternatives to that, alternative modes of farming that can reduce the use of chemicals. So that should be incentivized, I believe, as well. Those chemicals are filtering down into the aquifer and polluting it. And chemicals used in agriculture are also what pretty much um, has created a large dead zone in the Gulf of Mexico as well. And it's something that you write about in the book. Your, um, as you said, you 
at a certain point, uh, you moved back to the farm when you were having your son and lived there for a while. But you describe um, the smell of, of these chemicals that uh, really, even when you were in from the field, you really couldn't, couldn't escape. Right. I felt endangered by them. I felt like my son was being endangered by them. Um, I wasn't sure that they weren't getting into our drinking water and the smell itself. It just, it was deadly. You, you, you know, when you're smelling poison, uh, the farmers there have grown accustomed to it through the gradual use of chemicals over the decades. They take for granted that that's the only way to farm. There, there are others, you know, there are farmers, young farmers who are using new techniques. Uh, regenerative ag agriculture is beginning to take root in high plains. And that's a little bit of an unintended pun because regenerative farming is about leaving roots in the soil so that the soil can absorb more water and keep it and it can also hold nutrients better and um, all of the underground mycorrhizae and so on can feed the roots of the plants and you have a healthier soil. So there's some hope on that level, but at this point, there's way more chemical use than is healthy for the water or for the people who live there. And that, that shows up in cancer rates and, and in um, chemical tests of the wells. So this is not just a book about agriculture, farming, the depletion of the aquifer and the history of the land there, but it's a story of your life, your family, and it has a, a really wonderful story of, of your relationship with a man who uh, you met in kind of a, a, an unusual way. He just sort of appears while you're looking for water and he oddly has read your book. And it, it just, because this is a, a central theme in the book and I'd love you to talk about that episode of what you were doing out there uh, looking for water and this person appears. Okay, by that point I was in my... 50s, I, I had become a different person from the one who left Kansas. Uh, I had sort of rediscovered my love of the outdoors in while living in California, and uh, had started camping and uh, wound up living in the Mojave Desert for a while all by myself out in this remote mountainous region, because I wanted to become a writer and I thought I could teach myself to write there. So at any rate, now that I'm back on the farm, or I'm, I'm, this is after I came back home in the 1980s, farmed with my father for a while, went to college in Iowa, taught in Wyoming, <laughs> and now I'm living in Wyoming, and I've decided I want to write this book about the Ogallala Aquifer because it troubles me. I have this environmental consciousness that I developed over those years camping and living in the Mojave Desert. So I, I don't have a clue how to begin this book. And so I just do what I 
tend to want to do any anyway, which is go out and look for water. I, I like to do that. I do it here and I because I'm sort of a water nut. I've also become a, a lake swimmer because I have all this zealous love of water. It's just natural for me to go looking for it and, and going and looking for water on the land that I had grown up on. I was making, I was looking to make discoveries about my childhood home that I hadn't known to try to make when I was a child. And I was also trying to reassure myself that the water was still there, that it was still coming to the surface through these springs that I had read about in the study I had done about Native American history. I just really needed to feel reassured that that water was still there. And I sort of mystically thought that if I found the water, maybe it would tell me how to begin this book, what to say, maybe it would speak for itself to me. So I was out on sort of a, a quest for inspiration that day. And um, I was tracing the, the stream bed that um, um, our farm had been, my childhood farm had been on a creek called the Little Beaver. So it was a dry creek bed. And I was tracing that creek bed and following it as much as I could in my car, stopping here and stopping there, crawling through pasture fences to go check out the creek. And that's exactly what I was doing when I was in this pasture. I was actually trespassing, but that's usually not too big a deal out there. But still, I was a little bit concerned when I heard this pickup approaching. And in the pickup was this man. Um, his name was Ward. And I actually changed his name for the book, but his name for all intents and purposes is Ward. <laughs> and um, we started to talk. And at one point he said, I know who you are, you wrote that book. So he had read my first book as it turned out. And that coincidence was just wonderful. You know, it, it sort of felt like destiny Really, Ward was my attempt to get back into right relationship with the land I grew up on. I didn't really understand that I had, I needed to do that yet. I didn't know that I would ever consider living back there again because it, it had held nothing for me socially to speak of. But now with a partner, I started to imagine how I might be able to go back and and farm our, with my father differently. Actually, my father died, had died at this point, but I, I started to imagine how I could maybe take over the family farm and do things the way I thought they should be done. And in um, you're describing this relationship, he's called Wade in the book, with him and and your family. In fact, um, it, it we could talk about your relationship with the men, your relationships with the men in, in your life, um, because your son is a significant one, as is your dad. But I want to just digress a little bit, because I noticed in the acknowledgments, you thanked somebody who encouraged you to write more openly about sex. And and though this isn't a dominant thread in the book, you do approach it in talking about your relationship. So I'm wondering how you broke through perhaps your own reticence about uh, approaching this kind of personal topic. I think writing 
a memoir especially is about getting closer and closer to the truth and you come up against these walls where you're afraid to go beyond them but you know that if you don't go beyond them you're not going to be able to talk about things that are significant to you that really do matter so you're shackling your own ability to do what you sat down to do i met a woman at a writer's workshop uh, she's the one who's mentioned in the acknowledgement who had written quite in depth about sex and she just encouraged me to go for it. So I did, and um, it was successful. Readers ex responded really well to it. And I thought, okay, well, that's, that's just another wall I've broken down then, you know? And I think it's good. I think it's good because, you know, women don't get to tell their side of the, of the story around sex too often. We don't see it in movies. We see sort of a fictitious kind of, uh, sexuality in movies and I wanted to be more honest about that so as you said it's just a small part of the book but I I didn't want to just put a dam across the creek right there where I was you know beginning to flow I guess what I loved about reading the book was that and I hope our listeners can tell that you know, there's substance about real things that matter beyond just your life in our world. Um, and yet you have these very personal stories that have their own arcs and drama to them, too. And I think that that must be the challenge of writing a book like this. I have... Um this water in the center of my vision at all times, regardless of what thread I'm on. And that's really what ties the book together. I mean, the Native Americans are in there because of the water. I mentioned my desert life because of my fascination with dry desert versus water, desert and water. Actually, I have a couple of paragraphs I could read that might address uh, this a little bit. Please. This was when I had just moved back to the farm and was pregnant with my son. And I had just gone swimming in my father's tailwater pit, <laughs> which was this unappealing body of water, but it's all I had. And I had a tendency to just jump in to water if it's all I could find. That's I was going to get my swim one way or another. And he had not really approved of that. Uh, he just... I had told him that I had swum naked in the Mojave and that had made him a little bit angry. So it's at that point, I'm riding back to town with him in his pickup and I'm remembering my time in the desert. Closing my eyes, I pictured the sun shimmering in the leaves of the grandfather cottonwood that towered over the stockwater storage tank I'd swum in every summer afternoon when I lived at the rock house. Beside it, the windmill was probably spinning right now. Were I there, I would be standing on my pickups, hood, performing my ablutions. First, I would dip my head in, my scalp burning with cold. I would shampoo my hair and rinse onto the ground using the old aluminum saucepan I kept there for the purpose. After washing, I would dive in. I loved that first thrill. 
Once my body had unclenched and acclimated, I would float on my back in the silken water, my arms spread, and stare up into the cottonwoods branches where a pair of tanagers, their bodies yellow, the male's head fire orange, flitted back and forth, bringing food to the nestlings. Imprinted on my memory were the conical peaks of the Pinto Mountains dappled in juniper, they and the craggy sandstone pinnacles of the New York range beyond them spoke the layered language of geology. To float in that valley had been to float on the sea of time. Daily I revolved, my arms and legs extended like clock dials, at the center of everything, water and desert, the water being the desert's most profound expression of itself, the antithesis without which desert could not exist the joy that made its barren beauty habitable. Julene Bear reading from her book, The Ogallala Road, a story of love, family, and the fight to keep the Great Plains from running dry. Thank you for reading that passage. Julene, we're running out of time and we didn't really talk much about your dad who was a quintessential farmer. He, he didn't strike me as a sentimental man. He was a practical man when it came to farming and the bottom line. He also is kind of a specter in the book, and you often reflect on things that he said as well. So I, our readers and listeners are going to have to find out more about that when they read the book, but is there anything you want to say about your dad? I was grateful that I was able to back there as an adult. I was about 35 years old when I went back home to have Jake. Without having done that, I never would have had that opportunity to know both of my parents as an adult. It was unifying in my um, sort of partitioned identity, inner, my inner identity. I just sort of, it sort of solidified um, by being able to be with my family, with my child there with, a, with me, it was wonderful to be able to raise him uh, for a little while anyway, with my parents present. And I also regained or gained for the first time an acceptance of more of myself than had been accepted there in the past because growing up as a girl, the roles had been very gendered and I wasn't allowed to drive tractors, for instance. You know, later I realized that that wasn't necessarily a privilege. <laughs> and my brothers certainly wouldn't call it a privilege because it was hard work. But it meant a lot to me to be accepted by my father as the potential child who would potentially take over the farm from him. And he was a he was a wonderful father. You said uh, the quintessential father. Well, I think he was both the quintessential farm farmer and father. And um, I just loved him dearly. Miss him a lot. Well, you always come back to water, whether it's a mountain, lake, or pooling spring. And now you are living in Northern California, and I wonder uh, what your life is like here. It took me a while to integrate here um, into the landscape, and what did it was water. I had lived in California from the age of 18 till uh, 30, I believe it was. And so back then, I had gone to various uh, lakes and rivers and 
and swam quite a bit. I, in order to, uh, I had to rediscover that that aspect of living here. And once I had rediscovered that and found my swimming holes and my places where I could kayak and so on, I, I've been a pretty happy camper ever since. Um, you can't you can't complain about Sonoma County. You know, you'd be foolish to to have a problem living here. It's just beautiful, a wonderful place to live. But you know, I, my geo region, so to speak were the plains and then I had lived in the Rocky Mountains on the front range in Colorado and also in Wyoming and so that was an, a region I was more accustomed to um, so I, I balked a little coming back here it sort of felt like I was going backwards or regressing somehow by coming back to California but now I'm very happy and content here um, I can't I can't say enough good about it I guess is what you might say and is there anything you'd like to leave us with about your book? It, there's just always so much that you'd wish you had had time to talk about that we didn't really have time to talk about. And, I, you know, it probably sounds like sort of a scattered book. And I, I'm still kind of amazed myself that it threads together as well as it does. I, I think the secret there is probably the narrative arcs in the book. There's stories, there's a couple of main stories that are being told and interwoven with each other. And so you turn the pages to find out what will happen. And along the way, I managed to inform people somewhat about the aquifer. I, w I once counted the number of pages there are in the book about the aquifer, and there are only 21. So it's not like the aquifer is the dominant uh, theme in the book, but well, maybe it is a dominant theme, but it doesn't take that many pages to develop it. And I would agree with you. You're a, a good storyteller, and it's a it's a good read. And uh, thank you for bringing it to us. Okay, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. My conversation with Julene Bear. Her book is The Ogallala Road, A Story of Love, family, and the fight to keep the Great Plains from running dry. I loved talking with both of my guests today, Greg Saris and Julene Baer. Their stories, coming from different places, seem to converge for me. I am grateful to both my guests, both of whom call Sonoma County home, and I am grateful to you for listening to us, and I always appreciate hearing from you. I have production assistance from James Morey and Mark Prell. Thank you, gentlemen, both. We are a production of Lit Radio and KRCB Northern California Public Media. I am Suzanne Lang with a novel idea.